0: It's good to be back, although it's taken me some time to land, and appreciation for the smiles and the eye contact from those that I passed on my first day back here. All is well. Uh, My mother had a moment. Uh, I think you all know she's 94 and uh, so I was home with family just managing that and uh, the day that I was coming back because I was between, should I go, should I stay, what should I do and she said, go give your speech, I'll be fine, (laughs) (laughs) I'll see you when you get back. (laughs) So on the words of my 94 year old mother, here I am to offer you my last uh, considerations in terms of a talk with you all this evening. So I thought I'd talk a little bit about uh, equanimity. And uh, I think tomorrow it is, uh, you'll have an opportunity actually to work with equanimity as a Brahma Vihara. But I'm going to offer some thoughts and some uh, observances about equanimity in general. Uh, it's one of the the uh, distinctions and concepts of the Dharma that's in a lot of places and it's kind of occupies that space in one of my talks I talked about Gina Sharp inferring or referring to the Dharma as being holographic and being able to enter at any point um, and engage with the Dharma moving towards freedom and wisdom, and equanimity is one of those concepts that um, can be engaged with in a number of different ways towards that end. From the Dhammapada, as a solid mass of rock is not stirred by the wind, so a sage is not moved by praise and blame. As a deep lake is clear and undisturbed so a sage becomes clear upon hearing the Dhamma. Virtuous people always let go. They don't prattle about pleasures and desires. Touched by happiness and then by suffering the sage shows no sign of being elated or depressed. Equanimity is one of the most sublime emotions in our practice. It is the ground for wisdom and freedom and the protector of compassion and love. While some may think of equanimity as dry neutrality or cool aloofness. Mature equanimity produces a radiance and a warmth of being. The Buddha described a mind filled with equanimity as abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility, without ill will. So you know I've always got a dictionary thing for you. I looked up equanimity, evenness of mind, especially under stress, nothing could disturb their equanimity. Another meaning, right disposition, balance. Both equanimity and equal are derived from equus, a Latin adjective meaning level or equal. Equanimity comes from the combination of equus and animus, animus being soul or mind. In the Latin phrase equo animo, which means with even mind, equanimity quickly came to suggest keeping a cool head under any sort of pressure not merely when presented with a problem, and eventually it developed an extended sense for general balance and harmony. Some synonyms for equanimity, composure, serenity, tranquility, calm, confidence, cool, patience, peace, poise, steadiness. Gil Fronsdale, one of our colleagues uh, out, of Calif- out of California, tra- is a translator. He, he, he's a, uh, studied um, Pali. And uh, he offers this translation of the English word equanimity back into Pali. He says that there's two different Pali words, with each having a slightly different aspect of equanimity represented. The translation we hear most often is upeka, meaning to look over. This refers to the equanimity that arises from the power of observation, the ability to see without getting caught by what we see. It is said that when well-developed, this power gives rise to a great sense of peace. Upaka can also refer to the ease that comes from seeing a bigger picture, to see with patience or to see with understanding. An example might be when we know not to take offensively words personally. We are less likely to react to what was said Instead, we remain at ease and equanimous. I actually had uh, an experience of this at the Athol movie theater. Yeah, I go to the movies sometimes. It's a good break for the mind. <laughs> this mind, anyway. So I was at the movie theater in Athol. Dawn and I went to the movie. And there was a whole lot of mix-ups and this and that, and because a lot of people were going to see this movie. We went that back the second day cuz we weren't able to get in the first day after we'd bought our ticket and it turned out when we were standing at the counter that the woman who had given us our tickets the day before had given us tickets to the wrong movie. So we were trying so here's Dawn and I the only black people up in there. Like it was a lot of white people. <laughs> so we're the only black people up in there, you know, the, us two women. And the manager, I guess she was the manager, the energy that she bought to us when we kindly explained that we'd been given the wrong tickets the day before, connected into this body. Connect, we looked at each other, and you know, you have that moment like, is this that or is this that? You know, and and, and it's, it's really a split-second kind of thing. It's not something you're figuring it out. You really felt sensing into it. And I decided or was inspired through leaning into the practice uh, to come back at her with kindness and graciousness. And eventually as we spoke and as we talked, I could just feel her energy ratchet down and ratchet down and ratchet down. And finally, at the end of that exchange, it worked out well for everybody. But sometimes these practices that we're doing and these strengths that we're building and the clear seeing that we're cultivating happens in the split of a second in terms of when it comes forward for us, just in the everydayness of doing life. The second word, often translated as equanimity, is Tatra <laughs> A Pali compound word, tatra meaning there, or sometimes referring to all these things. Maja means middle, and tata means stand or to pose. Putting them together, the word means to stand in the middle of all this. As a form of equanimity, being in the middle refers to balance, to remain centered in the middle of whatever is happening. The balance comes from inner strength and stability of heart and mind. The solid presence of inner calm, well-being, confidence, vitality, or integrity can keep us upright even in the midst of strong winds and storms. Where inner strength develops, equanimity follows. Ella Wilcox says, It is easy enough to be pleasant when life flows along like a song, but the person worthwhile is the person who can smile when everything goes dead wrong. Equanimity. Evenness of mind. When things are going well, there is no wild elation. When things are not going well, no depression. Equanimity is an impartiality towards all phenomena. Treating all phenomena equally. For example, the sun. The sun which shines on the earth. The sun does not choose to shine upon some things and not upon others. It shines upon all things equally, even when it's cloudy. This factor of equanimity is acceptance and receptivity towards all objects. So one of the places that equanimity shows up is as a quality of balance. The seven factors, which I think either Winnie or Don, I know we heard it, I just don't remember um, who spoke about it. And just as a reminder, so there are the seven factors of enlightenment. Three of them are arousing, three are calming, and mindfulness is neutral. So mindfulness, neutral. And then moving into the three arousing factors, investigation, energy, and rapture or joy. And then the calming factors, calm, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. So equanimity, notice, is number seven on that list. And even though there's all these lists in Buddhism, there's not all this linear stuff happening. It's just a good way to communicate, give you a sense of being able to understand. So equanimity, the seventh or last limb in this list of factors of enlightenment, Evenness of mind. One kind of reflection which cultivates this factor of equanimity, especially in dealings with others, is remembering that all beings are the heirs, the inheritors of their own past karma, cause and effect. When we see beings in great happiness, we can appreciate and find joy in their happiness, that's mudita, but with an equanimous mind, knowing that they are reaping the fruits of their own past deeds. Or when we see beings who are suffering, we can feel compassion and work to alleviate their suffering, but with an evenness of mind. When the mind becomes aware on a microscopic level of the instantaneously changing processes, It is this factor of equanimity which keeps everything in balance, in perfect poise. The Buddha has taught us the way to know life as it is and has furnished the directions for such research by each of us individually. Therefore, we owe it to ourselves to find out for ourselves the truth about life and to make the best of it. We cannot say justifiably that we do not know how to proceed. There is nothing vague in the teaching of the Buddha. All the necessary indications are clear as clear could be. Buddhism from beginning to end is open to all those who have eyes to see and minds to understand. So clear is his teaching that it can never be misunderstood. The only thing necessary on our part for the full realization of the truth is firm determination, endeavor and earnestness to study and apply the teaching. Each of us working it out for ourselves to the best of our ability. The eight worldly dharmas, these conditions are inconstant and impermanent. Gain and loss, pleasure and pain, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. Each of us is touched by the eight worldly vicissitudes, The factors of the endlessly changing conditions of gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain. When we cultivate and develop equanimity, we can move through the waves of these vicissitudes with balance and ease. When we remain unmoved in the face of those who praise and blame, we remain able to seek the welfare of both. Equanimity as a wisdom aspect. The experience of meditative awareness, it is said, that the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When attachment and aversion are both absent, the way is clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. This is expressed in the first few lines of On the Faith Mind by the third Zen ancestor in Joseph Goldstein's Mindfulness Book. Non-preferential awareness supports understanding and insight into the three characteristics, impermanence, dukkha, and the truth of selflessness. Then once again, equanimity shows up as a parami, one of the ten perfections. Generosity, morality, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, resolution, loving-kindness, and equanimity. Once again, equanimity being at the end of that list. One of the ways that I think about equanimity, because it's also the fourth Brahma vihara that is taught, is that it's the bass drum. It holds everything together. Without it, there's chaos. So it's actually a very honorable and regal position to be in. Uh, so That's helpful for, to me in thinking about providing the grounding and gravitas of these practices that we're engaged with in these six weeks or these 12 weeks. Patience and equanimity are considered the mainstays of support for the development and practice of all the other paramis. Only when we have set ourselves up with patience and equanimity, if we are patient and we develop this quality of impartiality, all the rest will follow. So how does one strengthen equanimity? We forego attachment. Do what you do with full commitment, but the outcome is beyond your control. When we act without attachment to the outcome, we allow our minds to remain peaceful and undisturbed, no matter how things unfold. Associate with wise and equanimous people. Practice it as a Brahma-Vihara practice wise attention and continuous mindfulness. In our meditation practice we practice inclining the mind towards equanimity and not being seduced by the pull of pleasant feelings. We cultivate a balanced mind having an impartiality that embraces all. There is no higher happiness than peace, the Buddha said, and the experience of equanimity gives us a taste of this peace. Equanimity is a perfect, unshakable balance of mind rooted in insight. Looking at the world around us and looking into our own heart, we see clearly how difficult it is to attain and maintain balance of mind. Rahula was instructed to develop meditation on equanimity. For when you develop meditation on equanimity, any aversion will be abandoned from the Majjama Nikaya. Joseph Goldstein states, looking into life, we notice how it continually moves between contrasts, rise and fall, success and failure, loss and gain, honor and blame. We feel how our heart responds to all this with happiness and sorrow, delight and despair disappointment and satisfaction, hope and fear. These waves of emotion carry us up and fling us down. And no sooner do we find rest than we are in the power of a new wave again. How can we expect to get a footing on the crest of the waves? How can we erect the building of our lives in the midst of this ever-restless ocean of existence if not on the island of equanimity? The kind of equanimity required is based on vigilant presence of mind and not on indifferent dullness. It is the result of intentional, deliberate training, not the casual outcome of a passing mood or a should or this will get me somewhere if I do this practice. Equanimity would not deserve its name if it had to be produced by exertion again and again. If that was the case, it would surely be weakened and finally defeated by the vicissitudes of life. True equanimity, however, is able to meet all these severe tests and to regenerate its strength from sources within. It will possess this power of resistance and self-renewal only if it is rooted in insight. What is the nature of that insight? It is the clear understanding of how all these vicissitudes of life originate and of our own true nature. We have to understand that the various experiences we come to know result from our karma, cause and effect, our actions in thought, word and deed performed in this life and depending on your belief system, in earlier lives. karma is the womb from which we spring. And whether we like it or not, we are the inalienable owners of our deeds. But as soon as we have performed any action, our control over it is lost. It forever remains with us and inevitably returns to us As our due heritage. Nothing that happens to us comes from an outer hostile world far into ourselves. Everything is the outcome of our own mind and deeds. So one of the distinctions that I just want to make here is that um, stuff happens, you know, Typhoons, fires, being hit by a car, stuff happens. So, when this talks about karma, at least my understanding of it, or a way I'd like to offer you for understanding it, isn't just specifically engaged with a circumstance, a condition, or an experience. But the comma, what we set in motion, comes from the way we interpret and engage with whatever the circumstances is, are. We plant the seeds today for what the life will look like tomorrow. And the life we're living in this moment was set into motion beyond in the past. So I know sometimes when you when people when we start to get into this conversation around karma it's quite complicated you know because there is can be with misinterpretation a somewhat fatalist way that we engage with this concept so I just really want you to um take a look at that for yourselves take a look at your life take a look at Circumstances and conditions and places that you find yourself and see if you can't identify the seeds of thought, the seeds of action, the seeds of choice that may have ended up creating the conditions that you find yourself in at any given moment. So out of that understanding the recognition and 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 uh, realization that in order to create a different future which is what we've been up to for this time that we've been together that we create a different now and how we create a different now is to not cling to not turn away from with aversion and to not be deluded, and to see things as they are, so that whatever choices and actions you take, you are informed by clear understanding of what's before you. Because this knowledge frees us from fear, it is the first basis of equanimity. When everything that befalls us, we only meet ourselves, Why should we fear? All the various events of our lives, many but not all, being the result of our deeds and thoughts, will also be our teachers, even if they bring us sorrow and pain. Oftentimes our deeds return to us in a guise that often makes them unrecognizable. Sometimes our actions return to us in the way that others treat us, sometimes as a thorough upheaval in our lives. Often the results are against our expectations or contrary to our wills. Such experiences point out to us consequences of our deeds we did not foresee. They render visible half-conscious motives of our former actions which we try to hide even from ourselves, covering them up with various pretexts. If we learn to see things from this angle and to read the message conveyed by our own experience, then suffering too will be our teacher and ally. It may be a stern ally, but a truthful and well-meaning one who teaches us the most difficult subject knowledge about ourselves, and warns us against abysses towards which we are moving blindly. By looking at suffering as our teacher and friend, we shall better succeed in navigating it with equanimity. Consequently, the teaching of karma will give us a powerful impulse for freeing ourselves freeing ourselves from karma, from these deeds which again and again throw us into the suffering of repeated births, of continual becoming, understanding that each moment brings a choice for becoming or being. Disgust will arise at our own craving, at our own delusion, at our own propensity to create situations which try our strength, our resistance, and our equanimity. The second insight on which equanimity can be based is the Buddhist teaching of no self, not self. To establish equanimity as an unshakable state of mind one has to give up all possessive thoughts of mine, beginning with little things from which it is easy to detach oneself and gradually working up to possessions and aims to which one's whole heart clings. One also has to give up the counterpart to such thoughts, all egoistic thoughts of self, beginning with a small section of one's personality, with qualities of minor importance, with small weaknesses one clearly sees, and gradually working up to those emotions and aversions which one regards as the center of one's being. In this way, detachment should be practiced. To the degree we forsake thoughts of mind, or self, equanimity will enter our hearts. For how can anything we realize to be foreign and void of a self cause us agitation due to clinging, hatred, or grief? Thus, the teaching of no self will be our guide on the path to deliverance to perfect equanimity. From the Majjama Nikaya. What householder is the immeasurable deliverance of mind? Here an abiding, pervading one quarter with a mind imbued with loving kindness, likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth, so above, below, around, and everywhere and to all as to themselves, they abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving-kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. They abide pervading one quarter with a mind imbued with compassion. They abide pervading one quarter with a mind imbued with appreciative joy. They abide pervading one quarter with a mind imbued with equanimity, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. This is called the immeasurable deliverance of mind. Although equanimity grows naturally through Vipassana practice, the quality of equanimity can also be cultivated in meditation the same systematic way that is used for loving kindness or compassion or sympathetic joy. Even though we may cultivate a boundless compassion for ourselves and others and strive to alleviate suffering in the world, There are still many situations that we are unable to affect. As the well-known prayer says, may I have the strength to change the things I can, the patience to accept the things I cannot, and the wisdom to know the difference. So as a reminder and a tying together, equanimity as a Brahma-Vihara, um, you know, I've, I've spoken to some of you who I've worked with individually. I hold really that the brahma are an integrative practice, even though it's taught like separate pieces, and that we flow in and out, in and out, in and out, engaging one or the other, multiple times building a tapestry of heart qualities that hold us and provide a way to move in the world um, bringing balance to the cultivation of the mind of insight the importance of cultivating these heart qualities within the same Uh, wholeness brings wholeness this cultivation of heart and mind and each one connects and engages the other. The four sublime states of mind these four attitudes are said to be excellent or sublime because they are the right or wise or ideal way of conduct towards other living beings. They provide a context to all situations arising from social contact. They are the great removers of tension, the great peacemakers in social conflict, and the great healers of wounds suffered in the struggle of existence. They level social barriers, build harmonious communities, awaken slumbering magnanimity long forgotten, revive joy and hope long abandoned, and promote human brotherhood against the forces of egoism. The Brahma Viharas are incompatible with a hating state of mind. They are called abodes because through practice they become the mind's constant dwelling place where we feel at home, In other words, our minds should become thoroughly saturated by them. They can become our inseparable companions and we can be mindful of them in all our common activities. As the Metta Sutta, the Song of Loving Kindness says, when standing, walking, sitting, lying down, Whenever one feels free of tiredness, let one establish well this mindfulness. This, it is said, is the divine abode. They should be non exclusive and impartial, not bound by selective preferences or prejudices. A mind that has attained the boundlessness as the Brahma Viharas will not harbor any national, racial, religious, gender, or class violence and hatred. Until we are practiced to the degree where we are abiding in the heart naturally with that mental attitude, it will not be easy for us to affect that boundless application by a deliberate effort of will and to avoid consistently any kind or degree of partiality. To achieve that, in most cases, we have to use these four qualities not only as principles of conduct and objects of reflection, but also as subjects of methodical meditation. The practical aim is to achieve, with the help of these sublime states, those high stages of mental concentration meditative absorption, what we've been working with to some degree or another in this retreat. Generally speaking, persistent meditative practice will have two effects. First, it will allow these four qualities to sink deep into the heart so that they become spontaneous attitudes which are not easily overthrown. Second, It will bring out and secure their boundless extension, the unfolding of their all-embracing range. The ultimate aim of attaining these Brahmavihara-concentrated states is to produce a state of mind that can serve as a firm basis for the liberating insights into the true nature of all phenomena as being impermanent, liable to suffering, and unsubstantial. A mind that has achieved meditative absorption induced by the sublime states will be pure, tranquil, firm, collected, and free of selfishness. It will help make the mind firmer and calmer in withstanding the numerous irritations in life that challenge us. To maintain these four qualities in thoughts, words, and deeds. And might I say that oftentimes it's much more difficult uh, to remain equanimous, to hold these abodes in the little things in life, not the big things. We can bring this awareness, we're reminded with the big things, you know, but it, like when that person cuts in front of you when you're driving or you're online and someone's actually still using cash and it takes a little longer. (laughs) Those little moments. In addition, when one's conduct is increasingly governed by these sublime states, the mind will harbor less resentment, tension, and irritability. Our everyday life and thought has a strong influence on the meditative mind. It is only if the gap between them is persistently and consistently narrowed that there will be a chance for steady meditative deepening and growth leading us towards freedom. Tanisaro Bhikkhu says, meditative development of the sublime states will be aided by repeated reflection upon their qualities, the benefits they bestow, and the dangers from their opposites. As the Buddha says, what a person considers and reflects upon for a long time, to that his mind will bend and incline. Equanimity refers to a balance in the mind called neutrality of mind. Literally, Bhikkhu Bodhi translated it as, there in the middleness between extremes, This quality of evenness speaks to how it functions. When this middleness is cultivated, it brings about an unshakable quality of mind. There is a tremendous strength in that. Equanimity as a divine abode. It is impartial. Equanimity's ability to hold all as equal gives the other brahma their boundless capacity. Unbounded love guards compassion against turning into partiality, prevents it from making discriminations by selecting and excluding, and thus protects it from falling into partiality or aversion against the excluded side. Love imparts to equanimity its selflessness, its boundless nature, and even its fervor. Fervour, too, transformed and controlled, is part of perfect equanimity, strengthening its power of keen penetration and wise restraint. Compassion prevents love and sympathetic joy from forgetting that while both are enjoying or giving temporary and limited happiness, there still exists at that time most dreadful states of suffering in the world. It reminds them that their happiness coexists with measureless misery, perhaps at the next doorstep. It is a reminder to love and sympathetic joy that there is more suffering in the world than they are able to mitigate, that after the effect of such mitigation has vanished, sorrow and pain are sure to arise anew until suffering is uprooted entirely Compassion does not allow that love and sympathetic joy shut themselves up against the wide world by confining themselves to a narrow sector of it. Compassion prevents love and sympathetic joy from turning into states of self-satisfied complacency within a jealously guarded petty happiness Compassion stirs and urges love to widen its sphere. It stirs and urges sympathetic joy to search for fresh nourishment. Thus, it helps both of them to grow into truly boundless states. Compassion guards equanimity from falling into a cold indifference and keeps it from indolent or selfish isolation. Until equanimity has reached perfection, compassion urges it to enter again and again the battle of the world in order to be able to stand the tests by hardening and strengthening itself. Sympathetic joy holds compassion back from becoming overwhelmed by the sight of the world's suffering, from being absorbed by it, to the exclusion of everything else. Sympathetic joy relieves the tension of mind, soothes the painful burning of the compassionate heart. It keeps compassion away from melancholic brooding without purpose, from a futile sentimentality that merely weakens and consumes the strength of mind and heart. Sympathetic joy develops compassion into active sympathy. Sympathetic joy gives to equanimity the mild serenity that softens its stern appearance. It is the divine smile on the face of the enlightened one. A smile that persists in spite of his deep knowledge of the world's suffering. A smile that gives solace and hope, fearlessness and confidence. Wide open are the doors to deliverance, thus equanimity speaks. Equanimity, rooted in insight, is the guiding and restraining power for the other three sublime states, It points out to them the direction they have to take and sees to it that this direction is followed. Equanimity guards love and compassion from being dissipated in vain guesses, and from going astray in the labyrinths of uncontrolled emotion. Equanimity being a vigilant self-control for the sake of the final goal does not allow sympathetic joy to rest content with humble results, forgetting the real aims we have to strive for. Equanimity, even-mindedness, gives to love an even, unchanging firmness and loyalty. It endows it with the great virtue of patience, Equanimity furnishes compassion with an even, unwavering courage and fearlessness, enabling it to face the awesome abyss of misery and despair which confront boundless compassion again and again. To the active side of compassion, equanimity is the calm and firm hand led by wisdom. Indispensable to those who want to practice the difficult art of helping others. And here again, equanimity means patience. The patient devotion to the work of compassion. Says the master. For one who clings, motion exists. But for one who clings not, there is no motion. Where no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there is no craving. Where no craving is, there is neither coming nor going. Where no coming nor going is, there is neither arising nor passing away. Where neither arising nor passing away is, There is neither this world, nor a world beyond, nor a state between. This, verily, is the end of suffering. I had to give it to you twice, because that's one to remember. Equanimity is the crown and culmination of the four sublime states. But this should not be understood to mean that equanimity is the negation of love compassion and sympathetic joy, or that it leaves them behind as inferior. Far from that, equanimity includes and pervades them fully, just as they fully pervade and perfect equanimity. Looking carefully at our internal and external experience, we can see that change is fundamental and is intrinsic to the entire world. Within ourselves, we see the rhythms of our own biochemistry. Everything is moving, vibrating, pulsating in rhythm. We see this as well in the rhythm of the planet, in the ebb and flow of the tides, the cycles of the day and night and of the seasons and in all the cycles of the natural world. Life is not really a series of unanchored chaotic events. Rather, it is a mosaic. It has a pattern. Each experience has some part in creating the whole. There is harmony in the bigger picture. This remarkable flow of experience is the great tapestry of our lives. Of course, it is hard at times to embrace the painful, difficult times as being part of that whole. To feel as connected to those harsh events as we do when things are pleasant, easy and fortunate. Really, our lives are composed of continual change without ceasing what the ancient Taoists call the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows come and go over and over again. As the Buddha said, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute constantly arising and passing away beyond our Control. Most of the time, our hearts and minds respond to the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows by careening back and forth over and over again between elation and despair, the violent movement for and against what our experience is. Or we may find we respond with denial in its many manifestations indifference, repression, not noticing, muffled anxiety, feeling disconnected. The good news is that the Buddha revealed that rather than being lost in these conditioned reactions, we can learn to be balanced in response to them. Attaining this balance does not mean that we become blobs and do not feel things anymore. The Buddha taught that we can feel pleasure fully, yet without craving or clinging, without defining it as our ultimate happiness. We can feel pain fully without condemning or hating it. And we can experience neutral events by being fully present so that those moments are not just fill-ins until something more exciting comes along. This non-reactivity is the state of equanimity and it leads us into freedom of heart and mind in each moment. Always asking ourselves these questions, how am I relating to this experience or circumstance? Was there grasping or aversion or delusion? Or was there acceptance, letting go? Was there bondage or was their freedom? The Buddha's teaching is not remote or abstract. It is about our knee pain now, our heart pain now, our grief now, our annoyances now, and how we respond to it right here in this moment. Krishnamurti once said, Freedom is now or never. Equanimity's strength is the result of a combination of understanding and trust. It is based on the understanding that the conflict and frustration we may feel when we cannot control the world does not come from our inability to do so, but rather from the fact that we are trying to control the uncontrollable just as we understand that we cannot prevent the seasons from changing or the tide from coming in and that following spring, summer arises, can we apply the same wise balance to the cycles and tides of pleasant, unpleasant and neutral experiences in our lives? From a Chinese poem, 10,000 flowers in spring. The moon in autumn. A cool breeze in summer. Snow in winter. If your mind is not clouded by unnecessary things, this is the best season of your life. Equanimity born of understanding, teaches us to abide in stillness, the deepest peace. It is the stillness of wakefulness, alive and responsive to life. The roots of reactivity and suffering in greed, ill will and delusion come to an end. The reification of the self and other Confusion and distorted perceptions become transparent. The heart is freed from the finiteness born of confusion and reactivity. It is a stillness of freedom imbued with kindness and joy and compassion. Equanimity is the deepest peace a boundless freedom that is possible for each of us. The Buddha taught, if I did not think this path and its fruition in liberation was possible for you, I would not ask it of you. Because I know this path of immeasurable freedom is possible for you, therefore, I ask it of you. What is possible with equanimity? This commentary by Bayo Okumalafe. The times are urgent. Let us slow down. A different urgency is called for in these moments. A broadening of the spectrum of action. A different kind of accountability. One which knows that love is not a bridge. Love is a hyphen. Different questions are alive right now. What would a politics of many streams and not just the mainstream look like? What needs to shift in order for genuine intercultural and interspecies dialogue to happen? How can we forgive ourselves without diminishing our complicity and entanglement in oppressive systems? In what ways do schools perpetuate an accepted form of violence on some children and an exclusionary notion of education for others? What strategies could help us assume postures of curiosity into the mysterious lives of humans and non-human others. What if this trauma of being inappropriated has something to tell us? What if we are stuck in a Cartesian iceberg and the quantum leap we can make is from asking how we change the world to how we are what the world is doing? What keeps stressing our lives? And what if these irritants are allies we have not yet met? A human being is part of a whole called by us universe. A part limited by and in time and space. They experience We experience ourselves, our thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle, to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. Albert Einstein. We are here all training to tell the truth to ourselves and others, and to make the invisible visible, to honestly face greed, hatred, and delusion as the root of our individual and collective suffering and to endeavor to uproot them from our own minds and hearts, to pay attention and to support our ability as individuals and as a community to realize justice, which will contribute to the end of suffering for all beings. These contemplative practices and teachings are powerful and skillful means of creating and sustaining well-being for ourselves and for that possibility for others. Just as we have turned to face the difficult and unskillful in our own minds and hearts, so too can we turn towards the collective harms and challenges as well. May we be a contribution to the realization of a world of equanimity and clear seeing through individual and collective reflection, contemplation, aspiration, and action. Thank you for your listening. Let's sit for a moment and let the words fall. Now we are ready to look at something pretty special. It's a duck riding the ocean, a hundred feet beyond the surf. As the duck cuddles in the swells, there is a big heaving in the Atlantic and the duck is part of it. The duck can rest while the Atlantic heaves because the duck rests in the Atlantic. Probably the duck doesn't know how large the ocean is, and neither do we, but the duck realizes it. And what does the duck do, I ask you? The duck sits down in it. The duck reposes in the immediate as if it were infinity, which it is. That is religion, and the duck has it. How about you?